This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. And, uh, um, we started in Exodus 25 on Wednesday night, uh, thinking Mike would be gone to Israel. I was planning on a three-part series of the tabernacle. Um, and uh, so we got going on three furnishings that go inside the tabernacle on Wednesday night, uh, which is, of course, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the table with the showbread on it. Um, and today we're going to keep moving out from that in Exodus 26. Here's the context for those of you that weren't here Wednesday night. God's brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. So for 400 years, they hadn't heard much from God. And then he says, okay, time to go. You're done being slaves. And he pulls them out. But that doesn't necessarily, just because they're saved from Egypt, doesn't mean they're changed. And they still don't quite know who God is. God's some guy that talked to Joseph and Abraham back in the day. But we have a million people here who don't quite know who God is. So God says, do you want to make a covenant with me? You can be my people and I will, I will shepherd you. And of course, they've seen the miracles. They've been saved from slavery. And they all shout, yeah, let's do that. And then God reveals himself and they say, wait, let Moses be our representative. We don't want that kind of power right, right with, with us. And God says, fine, Moses is going to be the mediator. So God's talking to Moses. And this is the first thing he tells them, right? They get the Ten Commandments. He shows them that law. This is what it means to be holy. And the people say, wow, that's pretty hard because we wake up in the morning and we instantly think about ourselves more than others. We instantly are in sin. We're just human, right? And the, the, the Ten Commandments reveal to us the degree to which we're not God, right? So the people are like, wow, this is tough. And God says, yeah, but that's the law, but let's talk about me. Let's talk about who I am. And the next thing he tells Moses to do is to build this tabernacle that's a representation of who he is, right? And I like that we just sang House of the Holy One, right? That you have called, I have come to the House of the Holy One. This is a good place for us to be, this house. Hebrews 8.5 says they serve, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. There's a pattern to this tabernacle that matters to God. And Moses just on faith does the pattern, even not seeing the revelation of Jesus Christ and without seeing the patterns that are going to play out through the rest of the Old Testament. Patterns like gold is always associated with heaven. Silver is always associated with, a, with an exchange or a redemption or a purchase, right? Bronze is always associated with sin or impure, right? And, it's, and I think on Wednesday night I said it was brass and tin that got mixed. Katie corrected me. It's copper and tin that get mixed to make bronze. So it's an impure metal. So we have these patterns that Moses knows nothing about. He just does it on faith and he builds it. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see these patterns and these, these associations get formed, right? But if God wants to fix what happened in the Garden of Eden, where he can't dwell with humans because of the sin, the tabernacle is his first step to show us what it's like to dwell and abide with God. He comes to us, right? And this is what that looks like. So when we enter his courts, we know what it looks like. He starts from the inside. There's the law, and on top of it goes a mercy seat. Out from that is a table with showbread, which is about fellowship and eating together and dining together, and then there's a lampstand with a light on it. So you've got these three parts to what it's like to be with God, these three elements of God, three relationships with God that we have, right? 
And over that, we're going to have one tabernacle, one tent that goes over all three of those things, three in one, just like the nature of God. It shows us a little bit of heaven and what that's supposed to be like. So we'll start in Exodus 26. That's where we pick up. We're building the tent and we have four layers on the tent. Kind of like when you go to bed at night and you have four layers of blankets, there's four layers of tent over these three furnishings that are in the middle. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. On Wednesday night, we talked about how valuable that thread was and how how expensive that dye was and how hard it was to get those colors back in that time. This is an ornate inside. With artistic designs of cherubim, angels, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Okay, so we're reading an instruction manual for Sunday morning today. It's easy to read over this, but I'm gonna venture to say, if you bear with me through this teaching today, Like David, when you meditate on God's word, you see things that are there to see, but you got to stop and not just read past all the cubits. You actually have to try to picture it a little bit. So we're going to do that this morning. Why do we do this? Because if this is the tent where God sits, I want to know what it looks like. So when I go to heaven, it doesn't feel like a foreign place. It feels like coming home. And I think that's why we got a tabernacle, so that we can know what it feels like to come home. This is what it's going to be like. So five curtains, verse three, shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. So five and five, just like the Ten Commandments, only they're going to be coupled together. What this amounts to for us is about 14 meters by two meter strips. So they're these big, long strips of fabric, like a roll at Joanne Fabrics, right? So you get these big, long rolls. And then they have clasps on the other on the sides that couple them together. So they're going to be one curtain all when you mix them together. Verse 4, you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. Selvage means the end. So you're tying four of these strips, five of these strips together. And at the end, the selvage, you're going to make this, this blue yarn that ties the two sets together. So you've got one big white curtain tent. 50 loops you shall make in the one curtain and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the other curtain that's on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle, one tent. The curtains then are what you see from the inside. So if you're standing on the inside and not very many people got to go inside, we'll see that in later chapters, right? The Holy of Holies, one high priest per year gets to go in. The holy place, they're going in just to change out that bread, uh, and then they're out of there. But when you're in that place, the rest of Jerusalem has to take it on faith that this is a beautiful place. They don't get to see the inside. But we get to kind of imagine what it looks like because we have the word in front of us, right? There's no red or black that's visible in here. It's all white, gold, blue, purple, and then the little scarlet threads, right? So... I'm sorry, there's no black visible on the inside. The angels, they don't tell us what they look like. He lets the artists design those. So we don't know what the the cherubim would have looked like in these curtains. But you essentially have this space that's just beautiful. So God has three furnishings in one room. And there's only a single veil that's going to separate God from man. But in this point in the instructions, the veil isn't there. This is just the holy place or God's presence, right? We have the law in the ark. We have the table of fellowship. And we have this light that lights them all, right? This, this light or eternal light that's there. We have three natures to God. There's no statue like all the other pagan religions at this time. There's a statue of a God in the holy place. In God's holy place, there's no statue. 
the closest we get is on top of that law is a mercy seat. We get an empty chair, right? With this hope of things to come that somebody might fill that chair someday, right? There's a promise. There's not a statue, right? So we have these manifestations of there. Some people would say the ark, the table, and the light represent the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, right? We talked about that Wednesday night a little bit. What I want to talk about now, though, is that linen. There's this fine linen that covers everything. And from here forward, every time we see linen, we're going to have it associated with righteousness. Clean white robes, right? And even when we see cartoons of heaven, you have angels in little white robes, right? But that image comes from somewhere. It comes from the Bible, and it kind of starts here, that this entire area being draped in a fine linen is, is what's going to happen from here forward in the Old Testament. In First Chronicles 15, 27, David clothes himself in fine linen so that he can carry the ark, right? The priests are clothed in fine linen in Psalm 132, 9, and later in Exodus 28. When you see angels or Christophanies throughout the Old Testament, it's interesting. Every single time they mention what they're wearing. It's like when you meet someone and say, oh, they, they were wearing a you know, jeans and a, a shirt, like it means something. But in the Bible, it does. What someone is clothed in matters because it tells us something about their inner character, right? So God's building his tabernacle from the inside out. But with humans, we start with putting on the robes that God gives us and he changes us in that kind of way. At the tomb, it's interesting, Mark 16, 5, at entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe on the right side and they were alarmed. So they go into a tomb, they don't expect to see righteousness, but there it is, sitting right at the tomb. An angel that's going to give them the news that Jesus is rose from the dead. Other places where you see this kind of thing is Ezekiel 9 and 10, Daniel 10, John 20. Again and again and again, angels, images of Christ, are clothed in white linen. Why? Because white linen means righteousness, right? It's been someone who's been prepared to be in the presence of God. Then you get the second layer after these white curtains, right? What's interesting is if the white curtains do their job, you don't even see the second layer. It's not visible from inside God's holy place. And it's interesting that the second layer is perfect black, right? So we have, you shall make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle, and you shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And the 11 curtains shall have all the same measurements. These curtains then are bigger than the white curtains. Did you notice that? So where the white curtains, there's 11 instead of 10 of the black ones. Goat hair is like our felt. So all the tents during this time, that's the most common material you can find. It's easy to get to. The white linen, you got to ship in from Egypt, right? So you got to get that from Africa. But this goat's hair, you bring it with you and it bleats and, it, and you have to take care of it and raise them. But when they killed the goats and then they treated it without any dyes or anything, you'd have this nice black felt that was thick. It was easy to sew and put together. So when you look at the camp of, of, of the Israelites, it would have been a lot of black tents, right? All over, scattered around. And right in the middle, you'd see this beautiful white courtyard curtain in the middle of all that black right? The tabernacle is the same way. On the inside, it would be this white curtain. And then on the outside, you see this layer of black or felt that gets hidden, but it's common. It's available. It would have quieted things down. That, that felt would have muffled the sound in the tabernacle. So you could have the busyness of a million people outside, but on the inside, it'd feel really comfortable and cozy, right? 
So in verse 9, you shall couple the five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. So either way you double that over, you're going to have a door or a way in. There's one way into the tabernacle. You want to be in the presence of God? There's one path to get the presence of God, right? You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, and that is the outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the other set, and you shall make 50 bronze clasps to put the clasps in the loops. Notice that we switched from gold on the inside to the next layer out, we have bronze. And the couple of the tent together that it might be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back length of the uh, of the or the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains on the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. Most people believe that means the white curtains didn't touch the ground, but the black curtains were, would cover that up and keep you sealed from the outside. Like any tent in that era, the black curtain would have been the thing that kind of sealed it up and kept the rain out and whatnot. So that one cubit overlap, another way to look at that is it could have been at the top of the tabernacle. It overlapped like this, and we still do shingling like that, right? We do a double layer of shingles at the top of our buildings too. So there would be this overlap of the goat's hair that comes in. What that means is, even though the white of the curtain is there, if you now picture yourself inside the tabernacle, it's a dark place. There's no light that gets in through that goat's hair. No natural light that gets in. And we haven't lit the lampstand yet, so we have a dark place that needs a light. Right? And throughout the Bible, look for those kinds of references where they say we need a light in a dark place. It's often right next to a reference to the tabernacle. Right? That light represents the Holy Spirit or will that God's presence is the thing that's going to fill this. In other words, heaven without God is not heaven. It's just a dark place, right? But when you bring in the light and the life of God, then it illuminates and becomes amazing, right? And that gold, the light bouncing off the gold, all the gold pieces inside the tabernacle, it would have been stunning, right? I like candlelight to start with, but put candlelight next to gold and lots of it, and it just sparkles and radiates off of everything. The white curtains would equally bounce that light around the room, and there's going to be seven lampstands that go in this tabernacle, right? So it'll be fairly well lit. And without humans in the tabernacle, there's no shadows, right? So it just kind of builds that way. The the screen that is going to be made for the front, and we'll see that in 36, at this point there's no nothing that blocks the entrance of the tabernacle, right? We need another piece that's going to block it. At this point, the door is open, right? So, um, and, it, and you look down to verse 36, you can see where they build that screen later, but right now there's there's nothing that blocks. That black goat's hair doesn't block entrance to this presence of God. God then rules from here, and he's going to rule here. What's interesting is we see that he rules here for eternity, if you look at Isaiah 16:5, in mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and lasting righteousness. This place, this model that God's building has a hope to it that there's going to be somebody that this is from where God sits. And when we look at Revelation, we see really similar images of this mercy seat, this place, these seven lampstands show up there too. So if the entire tabernacle is about an eternal king and we don't have a tabernacle today, we got to look at the New Testament to see how Christians kind of handle that and what we do with that. But there needs to be an eternal king because every high priest from Aaron all the way through is dead. 
We need a high priest that doesn't die to have an eternal throne of judgment. It has to happen, right? So the Jewish people for 1,500 years get to carry this model around. Pretty soon they get tired of carrying it and they build an actual temple that doesn't move. But the idea is there's this place that's all built in hope of a king and a high priest that will never die, that will rule in all eternity, right? So when Jesus raises from the dead and we have this person that's claiming that he's God himself, we have an eternal person that can actually fill this role. This explains why thousands of Jews became Christians immediately after the resurrection, right? Peter talked in the tabernacle and explained this to people. Multitudes came into the faith right off the bat because those were the people waiting for their eternal king and there's an eternal Jesus ready to go. The third and fourth layers of the tabernacle, we have two more layers of the tent. They're both mentioned in one sentence, like they're not even that big of a deal. But let's picture this for a second. Verse 14, you shall make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. Ram skins would have been like our deer or, uh, or you know, uh, a lamb skin, incredibly soft, supple, unique. They actually would take dye really. This is the kind of leather you make your sofa out of. It's kind of leather you just want to sink into and be there. It's very comfortable, but it also increases the value of this tent, right? It's not just goat's hair. The leather creates a waterproofing layer over the top of it. So you would have this kind of substitute that would be sitting on top of the goat's hair that would keep the water out of the tabernacle, which makes this an extremely valuable tent. Badger skins is a tough word. It's takash. Most scholars don't think that these are actual badgers because we have badgers in Wisconsin, but they're not in the Middle East. Most people believe this is a kind of sea cow, porpoise, or, or seal. It would have been some water-based mammal that you could get leathers off of too, which would again been for waterproofing. So from the outside of the tabernacle, picture this, you've got this kind of moderate, big size building. It's bigger than a family tent, right? But from the outside, all you see is brown and red leathers patched together. We don't have specific sizes. So, you know, with the linen, we know they were cut and square and to size, but with these, there's no sizes listed. It's just this kind of layer that goes over the top. From the outside, there'd be nothing special to look at with this tabernacle. It's just a tent, a brown tent with some nice leathers on it. But you wouldn't see the gold, you wouldn't see the linens, the scarlet, the purple, the red, or the blue. You wouldn't see any of that beautiful stuff on the inside, right? You just see that it's pretty uh, well waterproofed. And from the outside, the waterproofing protects the inside from the elements. But from the inside, that also would make, if you're going to burn fire inside of a tent that's sealed up like that, there would be very little oxygen in this tent, right? Because if those flames are going all the time, you would eat up the oxygen in there pretty quick. So you've got this tabernacle. Now we've got to frame it. So we've got all the fabric, all the material for it. And then in verse 15, we're going to build some boards. Or another way to interpret boards is frames, right? So we're going to build a scaffold, kind of. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of the board. Two tenants shall be in each board for binding them to one another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side. So at 15 feet long and three to four feet wide, so you know however long a cubit is, somewhere in here, we're going to talk about these are pretty rare acacia trees. It would have been hard to find this wood. 
the entire nation would have had to go about and abroad to find these pieces of lumber because they can't just splice them together like we do today, right? So they had to find this lumber and this acacia wood is plentiful in the Middle East. It's a desert kind of element. It's a root that grows out of dry ground, which we see references of that in the Psalms too, right? So acacia is a, a, a hardwood, uh, even harder than oak. So it would be the kind of thing you would build a frame out of. Interestingly enough, acacia wood, if you, you don't climb acacia trees because they're full of thorns. So when you harvest acacia wood, you would take all the thorny branches and throw them into a pile off to the side in the lumber yard. So any, at any time, if you're going any, by any place that does carpentry or lumber, you'd see huge stacks of thorny acacia wood branches that are off to the side, which are shaped a little bit like little baby palm branches too, right? Some of you are already connecting the symbolism here, right? Okay. So acacia wood. I want to point out one other thing. The boards are 10 cubits, and we don't need to translate cubits. Just think of this. The linens were 10 cubits plus 10 cubits plus 8 cubits in the back. So there's north, south, and west sides that we're building right now. And the boards then are 10, 10, and, uh, and, and 8 would be the fabrics. And we have these layers. So there's more boards than there are ceilings. Let me say that again. At 20 boards at 1.5 cubits wide, you basically have 30 cubits width. But the fabric was only 20 cubits wide. Did you see that? See how you just read over this stuff? So you've got 10 cubits of extra wood here. So where does it go? So one could be that this is tabernacles, not like a triangular tent. It's a square tabernacle, and you need some cubits for the ceiling frame too. And that fits, but that only really accounts for half the cubits because you've got 20 boards on the south and you've got 20 boards on the north. So the other half of the cubits have to find a place to go. So keep that in mind. Hold on to that. Two tendons shall be on each board for binding one another. A tendon uh, is basically when you cut boards in such a way that you take out the middle of the board and then the other board you go like this and they fit together and you got a tendon, right? We still use that in carpentry today. It's one of the strongest joints you can make. It can be either a straight tendon or it can be an angled tendon, either one. But you'd have kind of that tendon. You don't need nails if you do that then. You don't have to hammer or bang at this wood. You just slide it together and you can slide it apart. So depending how you do that. So... Verse 19, under the boards, you shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the board for its two tendons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. So if there's silver under each of these boards, then that takes out that some of them could have been used for a ceiling, doesn't it? Because the boards are held up by the silver, silver, which is an exchange, a redemption. So this thing is these boards are up off the ground. They don't touch the ground. That's going to help them last longer. But it's also important to kind of note that the entire tabernacle sits on silver, a redemptive metal, a metal of exchange, of trade, right? And on the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there should be 20 boards. And under, the 40 so under their 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. So Moses is hearing this, and they know it's a tent that they're going to have to move around the wilderness. That's a lot of weight, right? These priests were bodybuilders. In order to haul this stuff around, you've got thousands of pounds of gold, metal, even the fabric. You take all that leather and stack it up or roll it up, you're talking about a ton of weight to move. So I imagine every time God said or to Moses, it's time to move, all the priests kind of went, oh, all right. And they had to go to work and service to do that. Serving God wasn't that great. 
So these sockets, the word socket in Hebrew is Eden, right? It's interesting that the foundation or the pedestal or the footstool of this building, they actually use the Hebrew word Eden for sockets. That's what this is built on, right? The whole thing's built on the story of this. Eden's the foundation and God and silver redeems from there. And silver gets associated, I'm saying that, but don't just take my word for it. Do a word study on silver throughout the Bible. And if you go back and listen to this recording, you can look at silver getting associated with redemption or payment for sin again and again and again. Exodus 21:32, Leviticus 5:15, Leviticus 27:3, Leviticus 27:6, Numbers 18:16, Deuteronomy 22:19. And then of course Jesus gets betrayed with silver as his his betrayal is purchased with a price of silver, right? Matthew 26:15. The foundation of God's house is on a purchase and a redemption on silver that buys something, right? That's the foundation of God's house. It makes you think that Jesus Christ was always the plan for God. It wasn't plan B, it was plan A. It was from the start, from Eden, the redemption was always God's plan. He knew we would screw it up, right? He knew we were human, and he knew that those that sought him would be the ones that he wanted around, right? And he's gonna wait for that to happen. We have one more wall, verse 22. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards. This implies the tabernacle faces east. I don't see anywhere else in the Bible where they give meaning to that. It's just west and east, okay? And you shall make, verse 23, you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. And thus it shall be for both of them. There shall be for two, the two corners, So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards, and you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle for the far side western. So you have a support structure that makes a square, rectangular-shaped tabernacle. Okay? The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. I like that. There's going to be a bar where God ties everything together that you can't see. And I think that's a beautiful thought. When we first got married, we were so broke, I had to make all the furniture for our house. And I would do things and Steph would hang out with me in the garage and she'd be like, why are you doing that? When you put that next piece on, you're not going to see what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, but God sees it. And sometimes you do things for his glory, not for to where it's seen. I love dovetail joints because they're really hard to do, but people that do them do it for the structure itself. They do it because it's high quality, right? And this tendon, this verse 28, the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. When God assembles something, he does it the right way for strength, for endurance, because it lasts and it doesn't need to be seen. Some of the craftsmanship is hidden and they go through the midst of the boards. Also a really hard joint to do. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as the holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. We keep seeing that. It's like a chorus for these chapters, according to the pattern. The pattern matters. Moses has seen it, apparently. We get the words for it. So you've got... 20 cubits north, 20 cubits south, and now there's a six, or with the two corner pieces, there's eight cubits on the west side. So you can imagine kind of this rectangle. 
the silver and gold, if you think of the, the putting the gold on top of these boards, is probably upwards of 250 plus pounds per board. So these are massive boards. would have taken multiple people to carry each one. When they moved the tabernacle, there would have been a parade of priests carrying these pieces, right? So we'll couple those things together and we get it. Everything's mentioned in detail, even that there's cherubim on the inside linen, but there's one part of a four-sided building that's not, really mentioned here and that's the floor so you start thinking well where's the floor and then you think well we've got this extra wood that they made them cut and layer with gold there had to be a purpose for that wood but if it's in the floor why don't they just say so traditional middle eastern tents even today you roll out rugs and if there were rugs they would have been detailed here's what i want on the rugs there's no explanation of rugs at all so there's two major theories tabernacle floor is dirt is theory one i'm not a fan of that theory I, it has, I have some problems with it for a number of reasons. First of all, whenever you see a mention of heaven, it, it, there's, there's often a mention of what's on the ground. The ground is covered in gold, just like these boards are, right? These boards are three to four cubits wide, somewhere in here, we don't quite know. So you could have easily taken these five boards and made a perfect sized floor for the tabernacle. But why don't they mention it? Why wouldn't it be seen? And I think that's kind of interesting. There's, it's interesting to me that when God reveals a model of heaven, there's parts he doesn't tell us about. There's surprises that are going to be there for us. Or for anyone like David that meditates on his word day and night and wants to come into his courts with praise, for anyone that takes any time at all to think about this tabernacle and you're picturing it in your head and you think, wait, what's on the floor? And what you see on the floor then, if you think about it, is going to be either dirt or it's going to be these gold boards, gold-covered boards. So the the I say dirt, that's the wrong word. Dust is what it should be. There's one mention of the floor in the Bible, and it's in Numbers 5.17. And it has to do with a ritual when there's a sin that's happened, and they do this stuff, and they take this water, and, and it has to and, and you take dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water, and then they use the water, and that's part of a ritual. So it mentions that there is a floor in the tabernacle. And it doesn't say dirt, it says dust. Dust is afar. Dirt is an entirely different word. And you got to jump over to Psalm 1842 to see that it's a different word, because that's where we see the Hebrew. And in that, in that Psalm 1842, it mentions both dust on the wind and dirt on the ground, and it uses two different words, right? So what's on the wind by the tabernacle? Well, if you're doing sacrifices day and night right outside the door at the bronze altar, probably what blows in through that curtain is going to be dust or ash from those sacrifices, which makes a lot more sense with that thing, that you'd clean that up and that occasionally the priests would keep that off the nice gold floors, but that it would be an ash that's pure or something that's been purified that would go into it. Just putting dirt off the ground and putting in a drink sounds like a cruel punishment to me. You know, taking a little dust from the sacrifices seems a lot more appropriate. That's way off track. <laughs> when illuminated, when the light shines, those gold floors, I think, would have been beautiful. And here's the other thing. When you illuminate wood flooring, you can see the grains in the wood going in a direction. If you've ever seen a wood floor, you can see the grain goes in a direction. So imagine this. If you've tended the floorboards on the north side and on the south side the long way, You've got all the woodwork going in one direction. Now they have this west side, the tendons there, you'd have the woodwork going perpendicular to that. If you look at the floor in your imagination, I don't know about you, I see a cross, right? Right on the floor of the tabernacle that they're walking on top of for 1,500 years that God doesn't mention and keeps it concealed. 
that anybody who stops and meditates on it and is looking for it can see it. It's not hidden in, in, any, in any dramatic way. So when it's lit, that's what would light up the floor of the tabernacle. Just a theory. Or it's dirt if you go with other scholars, right? I like to think that there's a gold floor just like there's going to be in heaven, which is mentioned in Revelation, right? That you're going to see this pattern that's right there waiting for you. That the three pieces of furniture are on three sets of flooring going in, in those different directions, right? God knows how to frame his building and he knows how to build his heaven and he knows how to prepare a place. And there's some things that God's doing that are just above and beyond our ways, right? And most of Israel would not get to see the inside of this room, right? We can only imagine it because we have the word here describing it, but most of Israel would have to take it on faith that there's something amazing inside that tent that from the outside looks pretty ugly, <laughs> just like the rest of the world. That has to. When we say that there's joy in the Christian faith, that there's abundance in the journey that God blesses us, people kind of have to take it on faith because what they see on the outside is this ugly mug, right? But what's on the inside is what's beautiful and what they see in believers. And I think that's true too. So the heavenly work of God is going to work through this wood that's bound together, that's covered in gold, that's dressed and clothed in gold. And it's all going to work together. Romans 8.28, we know all things work together for the good of them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. Both the visible and the invisible serve God in this place. Why? Because God sees it. It's according to his pattern, right? Moses then has to go communicate this to everybody else. And all the this put keeps the craftspeople busy. So apparently they learned how to do some crafts in, in Egypt too. There weren't just brickmakers in the crew, right? So there's people getting employed and busy. Otherwise, they're just going to get in trouble. So this gives them something to do. And part of what he has the artisans do then in verse 31 is he has them make these dividers. So... There's parts of God that we can get to and parts of God that we can't, right? There's parts of God that we're just not, we're human. And in the presence of God, we would just be consumed or burnt up. And God thankfully puts in some boundaries and barriers, not to keep us out or out of his presence, but to protect us from his presence when we are yet sinners, right? So it's interesting. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. I love that God just says, make some angels, but he leaves the creativity to the humans. He works with people to build this place. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and their four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the class, and then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. It's not to keep you out. It's for you, right? Frankly, I don't want to be anywhere near the law until the mercy seat has covered it, right? Because I'm condemned under that law. It's the mercy seat that protects me. And I don't want to necessarily be able to be exposed to that until it's God's timing for me to be exposed to that, right? Because I believe God loves me right? The veil was likely light and, and even see-through when it was first made. Egyptian veils would have been light and see-through, and they were more of a symbolic separation, not a permanent one. However, by the time we get to Jesus's day, rabbinic tradition says the veil was almost four inches thick, right? It got thicker and thicker and thicker as humans continued to have something to do with this veil, right? Not because it was in God's, we see it's not in God's instruction how thick to make it, but humans just kept making it thicker and thicker. That's a private place only for God. You can't come into his presence, right? Um, 
This separates the two rooms. You've got the ark in the Holy of Holies and then out in this other place where people were coming in every week. There's, there's people that go into the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. But that has the showbread and the light, the spirit and the fellowship of God can be accessed regularly by humans, right? Verse 34, you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. Thank you, Lord. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. So to his right, if you're looking from God's perspective from the ark, to the right is the lampstand and to the left is the fellowship. If you're looking from the human perspective, to the right is the fellowship and to the left is the spirit or the light, right? So the lamp is there as you enter. The veil blocks the view of the law for now, not permanently. And we have this Mosaic covenant where God can abide with humans. He can dwell with us in fellowship. He can tabernacle with us in this situation. This is where Moses can meet with God, but there's a layer of separation until, and you should put this in your columns, Matthew 27:51. The veil gets torn. <coughs> How does it get torn? There's a massive earthquake that tears these foundations. Remember those hooks? They said it was attached to the four pillars. The only way to rip the veil is you got to almost rend the entire temple or tabernacle. So that earthquake that split, if they did, if they put that veil up the way it's described here, that veil wouldn't tear at those hooks. It would tear right down the middle, right? Because that's the weak spot, not the hooks. The gold and the silver is not just going to rip, right? So Matthew 27, 51 says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he is consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Jesus has made a way for to be our high priest. Jesus tore the veil, right? The symbolism there is massive for the Jewish people. We like the veil being torn because we're post Jesus. But imagine for 1500 years how precious that veil was how it signified that God could be with us, but we couldn't be we, we couldn't be next to God, but we could abide next to him, right? That veil made it so that we could be in the same space together. That's a precious thing, a, a, a sacred thing. And to see it ripped and torn had to be devastating for people that put their faith in the building and not in the God who made it, right? So that had to be a, a, a challenge for anyone that was there where the religion had gotten to be so important that they forgot the spirit of it is to dwell with God. And Jesus said, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you are with me. I will put my spirit in you, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, wait for it at Pentecost. But we're going to abide together and we don't need a building to do it anymore. We're going to communion together, right? They actually eats with his disciples at the Last Supper and, and breaks bread with them and fellowships with them face to face, right? This is what's meant to be and why this veil is so significant. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the testimony of the ark. With Jesus, we can actually see mercy. When that veil is torn and what you see is the mercy seat on top of the law, we can actually see it or see through that veil, right? Now humans can be with them. That's the relationship or the nature of the relationship with God that wouldn't make any sense to us without the tabernacle. Right? Remember, he's talking to a bunch of slaves that came out of Egypt. All they think of is gods as being petty and territorial. And God had to introduce himself to say, this is the kind of God that I am. All the gods you've made up are very human gods. But if you want to get to know the real God, let me give you images to do that with. 
First of all, I'm three in one. I'm Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's different aspects to me. You can abide with my Holy Spirit, but you don't want to see the God of judgment until the very end, until you're ready to be judged with the mercy seat covering over, right? So you have these pieces. There's these interior dividers. And then the tabernacle itself gets a screen, not a veil, verse 36. You make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze on them. Wait a second. The whole tent is covered with brown, ugly leathers, but the door is beautiful and gives you a little glimpse of heaven every time a priest goes in and out of there. You can see the light shining out through that. This veil, if it's see-through, you would see the light inside the tabernacle if you're sitting out in the courtyard, right? So you have this idea of this screen kind of being there. Outside, this tent looks ridiculous. Inside, it's opulent and beautiful. Inside, it's common, or outside, it's common, and inside, it's rare materials. On the outside, everything's mundane and hard to look at even because it's just kind of sloppy, but on the inside, it's precious and refined and done by artistry. There's a world of different places you can go outside, but to get inside, there's one path, one way, and it's through this beautiful door. Isn't that an interesting way to understand God? And I'm too dumb. I couldn't have figured that out on my own. It took a tabernacle to help me see some of those things. And Jesus brings it all home, right? Jesus wasn't much to look at. He was both of the earth, right? He was a root that grew out of dry ground. According to Isaiah 53, 2, I'll read it. He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil, a lot like an acacia tree. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. God doesn't want to dazzle us into following him. He wants us to love him, Right? And you look at the Psalms of David. I want to be in your courtyard all day. I want to be in your presence. David's not marching in and out of the holy place. He's just hanging out in the courtyard with God's people. He's going to church. I just want to be in your house forever, for all of eternity. Lord, may righteousness and justice rain down upon your people. May I enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise all the day. I imagine going in these courtyards and there's musicians over here. You got Cindy playing her guitar. You got teachers like Mark over in this part of the courtyard. You can go listen to some Bible teaching. And in the middle of it all, you have the smoke of barbecue filling the whole courtyard. And if I teach and don't mention barbecue, something's wrong, right? And they're cooking lamb and cattle. Like these are beautiful smelling meats, right? They got bread going with frankincense all over it. You know, like the buttered Italian stuff, only it's Jewish bread, right? Man, I want to be in those... This is, sounds like home to me, right? When we eat a meal together as a body of believers, we're creating a little bit of this model of what God wants us to know what it looks like. You want to know what heaven looks like? It looks like the courtyards of the tabernacle. It's a model of things to come. Want to know what heaven looks like? Show up at church and hang out with a bunch of people like us, right? We're not normal people. We're not of this world, but we're God's people and he loves us. And we know that love and it shines in our hearts. And we're nothing special to look at from the outside, but from the inside, there's gold and fine linen of righteousness. Someday Jesus is going to clothe me in righteousness. Have you read that? Right? Someday we're going to be put in those white robes too. We will be a holy nation of priests that serve God. And we can go in and out of his presence on a regular basis. What are, and we don't even have to carry the tent on our shoulders, right? That's amazing to me. God's courtyard is full of people that can be in his presence. 
So from a distance, you see a, a big tent, a brown tent in the middle of all these black tents and a white curtain courtyard around the side. That's the next chapter. And it would be something kind of interesting. Even from a distance, you'd see those people of God having their get together and you'd say, well, that looks fun. I bet you could smell the barbecue from a long ways away too. So visitors coming to visit this nation of Israelites, that's what you would have seen in the middle of it all, right? It'd be limited access and there's one path in and, and God doesn't overwhelm people in that. It's just an invitation to fellowship. But there's power in that invitation. That's amazing. And those who go into his courtyard start to feel and see it. You can see why Jesus got so mad when they corrupted that courtyard into a place of exchange and currency, right? If greed, right? That's something that would have gotten God mad because it was supposed to be a place of invitation. Anybody can come into the courtyard. Not everybody can go into the holy place, right? You got a bronze altar to deal with, but that's the next chapter, right? But anybody can come into that courtyard and hang out. Even the livestock comes into the courtyard, like me, right? They'll let anybody in. I want to be in that place. It feels like home. And I want to be in heaven because that feels like home. Meditate on that day and night. So why do we study this? We study it because better is one day in that place than a thousand elsewhere. That's why we study it. You got a chapter on Isaac, right? You got 50 chapters on the tabernacle in the Bible. It seems like God has something here he wants us to see. He wants us to get a glimpse of heaven. This is what it's supposed to be. This is what I've meant for you to dwell with me and be with me. And for the Israelites, that mean, meant getting to work. They had to do some sewing and some lumbering and some metalworking. I still feel sorry for the blacksmith that had to make the lampstand out of one piece. That's one of those things where you think, oh, come on, Lord. Some of us have to put some work in on some of these things. Um, but the invitation, there's no work for that. There's just grace. Come on in, be part of the family. If you don't know what that feels like, I invite you today to take that invitation. Today, the curtain's torn. We don't even have to go to some building or some tent because Jesus opened that path. He's our eternal high priest. We just go to him and say, can you go to God on our behalf? We're sorry for our sin. Put it on the bronze altar. And can you just go into that holy place for us and be our mediator? That's all you got to do. And you are in the presence of God because Jesus says, yes, all who come to me shall be forgiven. Repent and you will be saved, right? And he's the only path. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And all that come to me shall not perish but have eternal life. An eternal priest that can give eternal life. If you haven't done that, I invite you to do that today. And you pray with me. Lord and King, we thank you. Lord, we are sinners and we come into your courtyard with the dust and the dirt of this world all over us. Lord, we have sin. We have done wrong. And we've done it from the day we woke up. And Lord, there's nothing we can do to come into your presence. We can't force ourselves on you. So Lord, we are so thankful that you've opened the way, that you've made it so that you can dwell with us. Lord, I invite you every day, come into my heart, abide with me and dwell with me. Show me where I am wicked. Show me anything I'm doing wrong and help me to get rid of it because I can't even get rid of my own sin. I need you to help me with that. Lord, make me pure. Clothe me in robes of righteousness. Not so I can walk around and flaunt it, Lord, but so that you can be glorified. Help me to be your servant, to love those around me and love you with all my heart, mind, and soul, to lift you up as God, as Savior, that there is nothing in this world worth worshiping 
that is greater than you, that even compares to you, Lord. So Lord, we pray that we can come into your courts with thanksgiving, that we're so thankful for the gift that you've given, that you've tore the veil, that we can actually see into the holy place. We can abide with your Holy Spirit. We can have fellowship with you. And Lord, we don't have to be scared of the law because your mercy and your blood covers it. You are a propitiation for our sins, and we thank you for that. Lord, bless us today and this week. Be with everyone in this room. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just light on them. May you touch them this week and be with them and go with them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.